some would say, oh, they were just so, they were so caught up in defending the faith against uh, Jews, for example, that they were just reaching very quickly for whatever they could from the Old Testament that sounded like it would be, you know, something that would support Christ. So um, kind of grabbing for all the interpretative gusto you can without thinking about it. So uh, for myself, I think that when New Testament writers quote and allude the New Testament, I do think that they are developing the original meaning of the Old Testament text in one way or another. That, that That's a huge difference right there. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, <sighs> blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Rick Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 86. I interviewed G.K. Beale about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. So we get into some of the more difficult times. We see the Old Testament used in the New, specifically in Ephesians. We see Paul seeming to change the words of the Psalms he's quoting. Matthew quotes Jeremiah, yet the quote actually seems to be from Zechariah. And then we end the conversation talking about Jesus' quotation of Psalm 22 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That actually leads into a conversation uh, about atonement and whether or not Jesus was separated from the Father on the cross. You'll notice that my outfit changes at this point in the conversation. We had to re-record that portion. And G.K. Bill asked me to share with you guys uh, a video done by Michael Reeves. So you can check that out in the show notes if you're more interested in looking further into this topic. So hope you guys enjoy. With no further ado, let's get weird. Awesome. Well, welcome back. I'm, I'm so excited to have you back on uh, the show. How are you? Yeah, just fine. R- remind me of the name of your, is this a podcast? Yes, uh, Weird Christian Podcast. Weird? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Why weird? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we just... I like to cover. I understand. I understand why weird because you're having me on, but why <laughs> otherwise? Um, I think you said something similar like that uh, when you came on before. But uh, we basically just try to cover topics that are a little bit more fringe. Um, okay. Yeah. So, and this is a topic, the one we're discussing today, that um, I've I really never read a whole lot on it. Never heard a whole lot taught on it um, in preparation for this and. The past couple of months, I have been um, exploring it more and more, and it's really come out of me reading the New Testament and just kind of being puzzled um, by the use of the old. So uh, hopefully um, you can shed some light um, yeah. on, the, on the topic. I know you've written on it before, um, a couple of volumes. I think you did, um, you edited like a, a volume with D.A. Carson, right? Where yeah. You, you did every yeah. single book. Yeah. Commentary on New Testament, use of the old. Uh... Yeah, I've written uh, actually several books on it. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm excited, uh, so I'll 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 throw it at you, and uh, hopefully, um, uh, and also re- remind me at the end to advertise. I have a conference um, uh, at the end of April on uh, uh, preaching and teaching the New Testament use of the old for pastors and elders. Oh, cool, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will definitely do that. Um, you can, you can. I guess you, since you brought it up, you can go ahead and um, if you want to elaborate more on that, you can. Um, yeah, uh, on April twenty eighth uh, at the Hope Center in Plano, Texas, 
of the 28th, I believe it's a Friday, um, we're having a conference on preaching and teaching the New Testament use of the old for pastors and elders and actually any others if, if they're really interested. Um, uh, what uh, the, One of the reasons for the conference is that I've found uh, both seminary students and pastors and Sunday school teachers who sometimes are elders um, uh, will pay attention somewhat to quotations from the Old Testament, but they won't pay attention typically to allusions. Hmm. And so um, uh, we're going to talk about how do you find allusions? How do you know when there's an illusion? And I'm going to teach them uh, how to use <clears throat> the uh, margin in uh, a Greek New Testament. Um, that's very helpful and how to use margins in their English Bibles as well. But especially we're going to, there's a Greek New Testament called the uh, uh, the Nesalalan uh, 28th edition Greek New Testament. And uh, it's got a wonderful margin uh, so that by uh, and on every page, uh, there are often several references to the Old Testament. And uh, so people need to make themselves aware of when there is an illusion. So we're going to tell them how to find the illusions and then how to interpret them. But if uh, so, so that's, you know, it's, it's just not typical that people refer to these illusions. And the New Testament has many references to the Old Testament. Most of them are illusions, mm. not oh. quotations. Yeah. And so um, if you really want to know how the Old Testament is related to the New, you've got to also look at the illusions. And um, uh, if you're preaching in the New Testament in a particular book, uh, and, and, and there aren't many uh, quotations in it, uh, say, like in the book of Colossians or mm -hmm. the book of Revelation, um, well, there are a lot of illusions, especially in Revelation. Mm -hmm. And if you don't... Um, <clears throat> talk about those illusions and how they're being used, then you're not going to be uh, giving the full sense and the full meaning of the text. And furthermore, to be able to do that uh, is immediately locating you uh, in the redemptive historical context. In other words, you know, if you have a, if you're in Colossians 2 and there's a reference to the Old Testament, let's say to uh, Numbers, well, uh, immediately, uh, that's a signal that the author wants you to go back to the book of Numbers and relate Numbers to Colossians chapter 2. Yeah. And so um, th this is one of the best ways to locate uh, New Testament text uh, in, in their redemptive historical context, that is, locate them with the Old Testament, and to um, help uh, listeners uh, understand how a particular book of the New Testament is related to the uh, to, to the old. And so in, in this conference, we're going to talk about, number one, uh, different ways the Old Testament's used in the New. There are about at least 12 different ways hmm. uh, the Old is used in the New, like um, uh, direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's what most of us understand. There's a prophecy, then it begins fulfillment. Yeah. Uh, in the New Testament, and and sometimes those are with quotations, but sometimes those are with delusions too. Hmm. The second use is 
uh, indirect typological fulfillment where an event like um, um, uh, the Passover lamb and uh, uh, his uh, the shedding of his blood and sacrifice is a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that not a bone of his will be broken. Well, that's said of the Passover lamb in Exodus 13 or uh, 12. And then on the cross, that's seen as a fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. Not a bone of him will be broken because the Romans didn't break his legs. So um, uh, so there, there are those kinds of Old Testament references that don't prophesy by uh, direct prediction, but they do it through events events foreshadow. And then thirdly, there's uh, analogical use of the Old Testament, where you're comparing one Old Testament passage with a New Testament passage, like Babylon the Great and Daniel 4 then is compared with the world system in the book of Revelation called Babylon the Great. And those are only three. So we could, we could uh, there are actually 12 uses, and, and you really need to kind of get a handle on what kind of uses there are. <clears throat> and so you can explain that to, to others. And then We'll have a, an address that talks about the actual steps that you work through to interpret uh, an Old Testament reference in the new. And um, then we'll have a, a workshop, actually. We'll, we'll, we'll have some breakout sessions where we'll give the, uh, all the attendees an Old Testament passage and say, okay, in the light of what we've been talking about, do your best to, to interpret it. And uh, and then we'll go over how they do. Um, uh, everybody will do that individually. It's not a, it's not a group effort, but they'll just we'll, we'll break it down in groups. But but then we'll talk about it with the groups after they've done their work. And then uh, and in between, we'll have meals and breaks. And then uh, after dinner, we'll uh, have the final and, and we'll have question and answer sessions. And after dinner. Uh, I'm going to give an address called called Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And it will have to do with the debate that evangelicals have about is uh, are we to see Christ in every verse of the Bible of the Old Testament or just are we to try to find Christ only in the direct messianic predictions of the Old Testament? So I address mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um and then there'll be questions and answers after that. Dr. Ben Glad from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, will also um, be speaking, and uh, he'll be doing the workshop as well. So we'll be doing that conference together. Um, so thanks for letting me advertise that. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. When is that? That is April 28th. Wow. All, all day. Uh, let me make sure about that. Yes, and uh, it's at the Hope Center. Um, if you um, <clears throat> if you go to my website, uh, gkbeal.com, there's an advertisement there. And um, so uh, you should you should be able to uh, find out about the conference there. Yeah, oh, that sounds really cool. Um, and you kind of got into. One of the questions I had for you, um, you know, one of my ways was, I, I guess I'll start by, because you kind of already jumped in and gave an example of uh, a few different kinds 
um, of way that the Old Testament is used in the New. Yeah. Uh, and I, I want to start by asking, are there different camps of how people understand the New Testament's use of the Old? Um, in other words, uh, would there be some that would say, like, the use of the Old is simply just reapplying it where some of some others would say, well, there's multiple fulfillments. Um, are there different ways of thinking about it? And, um, you know, do you fall into what, like a certain category of thought on that? Um, well, there are different ways to answer that question. Um, uh, sometimes people might want to say, uh, that when something, when I would see something being fulfilled, and I might want to say, well, that's just an application right. of yeah. the Old Testament to the New Testament, and it's not fulfillment. Um, sometimes Walter Kaiser uh, will uh, respond in that way when the Old Testament references are applied to the church, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, a dispensationalist, for example, would say when Old Testament references are applied to the church, they're just applied and compared. It's not that the church mm -hmm. is the fulfillment. If that's the case, then we have prophecies about Israel that are fulfilled in the church, and, and that would mean the church is Israel. And yeah. you can't be a dispensationalist and believe that. Right. So a dispensationalist would say, no. Uh, that that's an application. Mm -hmm. Prophecies applied to Israel and compared to Israel. And a, a classic case where that occurs is in Romans 9, and I'll read it for you, um, where uh, in, in verse uh, 25, in verse 24, he says that God has called Jews, but also Gentiles. Then he says, as he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it'll be that in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now, that's a prophecy in Hosea 1 and 2 about Israel's restoration. Mm -hmm. it's, it's applied to the church here, yeah. to, to Gentiles. And um, <clears throat> so... Uh, Classic dispensationalists, some progressive dispensationalists, and perhaps others would say, this is just an application of this prophecy to the church. It's just a comparison. Right, yeah. I would say, uh, yeah, it's all of those, but it's a fulfillment. Mm -hmm. um, it's more than just that. It's a fulfillment because it was a prophecy in the Old Testament. It's a little strange to quote fully a prophecy, and then just to say, oh, I'm comparing right. this prophecy with mm -hmm. the church. It's most natural to see. The default function should be if an author like Paul is taking a prophecy and applying it to the church, uh, then it should be seen as a fulfillment of that prophecy or a, uh, a beginning fulfillment of that prophecy. And, uh, and, and what confirms that that's the case here is that in verse um, uh, 27, 
He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Uh, for the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Um, and again, he, he quotes another prophecy. We would have become a Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. So there he's talking about the remnant. Now he's talking about Jews. He's applying that to Jews, and that's clearly a prophecy. Mm -hmm. And and most agree that it is because the, the people who believed in Jesus were just a remnant. So it's explaining why the Jews, yeah. a majority are not believing, but just a remnant. And so that is a prophecy that saints fulfilled. But it also is, uh, it doesn't have um, uh, formal fulfillment terminology, um, but it's, it's very clear. Uh, you, you don't have to have fulfillment terminology to have fulfillment. Sometimes it will say, uh, this is what was spoken through the prophet, so forth. Um, this was the fulfillment of what was spoken through the prophet, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, in Matthew, play, uh, the, the Greek word plerao, which is the word for fulfillment, is used uh, around 13 times for fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So so you often get that, but sometimes sometimes you don't. So, yeah, that would those would be two categories right there of uh, understanding that's a different understanding of when prophecy is used in the new testament um now you could think of uh <clears throat> different ways or different groups in another way there are some who believe that when the new testament used in the old that the new testament writer is not using it in line with its original meaning but just ripping it out of context Right. And uh, kind of doing with it uh, what what he wants to do with it. And some would say, oh, they were just so they were so caught up in defending the faith against uh, Jews, for example, that they were just reaching very quickly for whatever they could from the Old Testament that sounded like it would be, you know, something that would support Christ. So um, kind of grabbing for all the interpretative gusto you can without thinking about it. So. <clears throat> Uh, for myself, I think that when New Testament writers quote and allude the New Testament, I do think that they are developing the original meaning of the Old Testament text in one way or another. That, that That's a huge difference right there. Yeah. Well, I have an, an example. Um, so in Acts 13, 41, uh, Paul quotes Habakkuk 1, 5. And if you go back, that does seem like that was, it seemed like that had, had already been fulfilled, but then he's talking about it as it being fulfilled uh, in, in his day. So would that be an instance where something can be partially fulfilled in the old and then fully fulfilled in the new? Or is it that there's a, a double fulfillment? Um, what about in those cases? I mean, I guess... You can, uh, you can think of it, some think of it that way as a double fulfillment. But it'd be a little strange because it's talking about the Babylonians coming in to judge Israel in Habakkuk. Mm -hmm. And so it'd be a little strange if that was fulfilled then. And But we don't have Babylonians anymore. So how is it fulfilled again? Right, yeah. Um, it wouldn't seem to be fulfilled in a direct prophetic way as it was the first time. Mm-hmm. So, but Paul is saying in some way that's relevant again. 
So I think what's going on here is that the fulfillment, the historical fulfillment is a foreshadowing Mm. of another fulfillment. Mm. Not exactly like the Babylonians. Right. Uh, Just as Jesus, when he fulfilled the Passover lamb, wasn't a lamb, right? Um, So so you have these, uh, uh, sometimes what you'll get in the Old Testament is prophecy, and it'll be fulfilled within the Old Testament. And then uh, uh, it, that that fulfillment itself will become a foreshadowing of, yeah. um, uh, of something to come in the future. Yeah. So now some would say it's a double fulfillment. I'm hesitant to say it that way. Certainly there is an aspect of double fulfillment, but I think I'd rather say that probably fits in the category of indirect prophetic fulfillment. That is, it it becomes an event. Okay, the Babylonians coming in to judge, fulfills that prophecy, becomes an event, which then Paul sees as a foreshadowing of um, Mm. probably something even greater Mm. in the New Testament epic here. But that that does happen. You you do get that kind of... uh, uh, A thing, and you could call it double fulfillment, but uh, I'd rather call it indirect prophetic uh, fulfillment in the way I've described it. So it's a, yeah. that, that's a, that's a good observation. Yeah, and I like I like the way you put that, and it it actually leads me to another question I had because it seems that what with what you described, it seems like we can even see that happening in the Old Testament? Do we have cases where the Old Testament will quote the Old Testament, or we'll see um, that sort of thing happening just within the Old Testament, where there's a fulfillment which becomes an event that's later fulfilled again? Yeah, this is very important that um, you mentioned something now that's very important, and that is that um, there's a lot of debate on how the New Testament writers quote and allude to the old. As I said, some think they do it in a way that's contradictory mm-hmm. to the Old Testament or does not really develop uh, the original intention of the Old Testament. And um, But you can go back to the Old Testament and look how later Old Testament writers interpret earlier Old Testament text. And that's actually been done in a recent book called Old Testament use of the Old Testament, mm. published by Zondervan Publishers, hmm. and um, it's uh, uh, done by a, a fellow um, uh, whose name is uh, Schnitger. Uh, that's S C H I T T J E R. S C H I T T J E R. It's hard to pronounce. Schnitger hmm. is the way he pronounces it. But anyway. You, he looks at all those uses, clear uses, and yeah. says they're contextual. That is, they, they develop, they're, they're related to the uh, original meaning of the earlier text that they're developing. And probably all the 12 ways that I see New Testament using the old, you already see that. Yeah. You already see those ways later uh, Old Testament writers using earlier Old Testament texts. Uh, mo- most of those are uh, already. Uh, done in the old in the old so um uh the um 
the New Testament writers aren't doing anything new. Mm-hmm. They're they're just continuing yeah, what yeah, yeah. Uh, later Old Testament writers did, and uh, and Jesus, what he's doing is um, doing what later Old Testament writers did, though now he is interpreting all of the Old Testament to point to him. Exactly. And um, we can talk more about that. Yeah, no, I'll definitely check out that that resource because that was one thing in my mind. I thought, you know, that would be something that could really settle these questions because, you know, we put a hard, obviously because of Jesus, uh, a hard divide between the, the new and the old. And in, in a lot of ways, that's rightfully so. Um, but, you know, in reality, for someone that's writing, um, you know, post-exile or uh, even just pre, they have, you know, their Old Testament. So they, you know, there's, you know, multiple iterations. Um, that's right. So they, they would have been doing the same thing. So I'll, that's fascinating. I'll definitely check that out. Um, but uh, I would like to, hmm, uh, I want to look at some more examples, um, some, some that just confused me. So I was reading Ephesians. Uh, I came across Ephesians 4, 8, and he quotes Psalm 68, 18. And I went back and I looked at, at Psalms and it, it the, the language used in Psalms was that um, he had received gifts. Um, and in Ephesians, it says he gave gifts. Yeah. Uh, and so that was that. Uh, and I even I looked even further into it. And it, it turns out there's portions of that psalm that actually is quoting Deborah's song from Judges uh, from Judges. You so, begun to hit the, the key there. Mm-hmm. That, that, that psalm uses the Old Testament. That would be a doctoral dissertation in itself. How does Psalm 68 use the Old Testament? And if you look, even in your New American Standard, if you have that in the margins, there are a number of places where it quotes Judges, especially uh, mm-hmm. Judges 5. Yeah. But that quote, um, you have taken captive your captives, mm-hmm. that's used uh, in the psalm and that Paul quotes, is from Judges. So the psalm's already using Judges. And so <clears throat> what does it mean there in Judges? It's a, it's a battle victory. It's a... It's uh, after you win a victory, you say, take captive your captives, Deborah tells Balak. So it's it's really a figure of speech for victory. Yeah, um, It's assuming the victory has been won, so let's take captive our captives. Mm-hmm. And let's lead them in a victory train back to our mountain kingdom in Zion. And um, so uh, whatever this passage is saying, it is saying uh, uh, that a greater victory uh, has been won. So now in, in, in the psalm, what it means is that the victory won by Israel in Judges 5 pointed to a greater victory mm. of Israel defeating its enemies around Zion. Mm. And now Paul is saying a greater victory. And, uh, and that victory is Christ defeating his enemies. Now, that still doesn't explain the reversal of the language mm-hmm. that you mentioned of receive gifts says God received gifts among men <clears throat> or he uh, uh, um, 
some, some Greek manuscripts have, uh, he gave gifts, which is interesting, but they probably were influenced by Paul. Uh, they're probably later uh, Greek Old, Old Testament manuscripts. So oh, wow. um, <clears throat> you do have the Aramaic translation called the Targum of Psalm 68 that has, he gave gifts. Hmm. Uh, but there they're interpreting that to be Moses who gave gifts to Israel um, after he ascended, and then he uh, uh, he, he gave gifts. I, I, I don't think that's the right reference, but um, uh, th- there is a, a fellow um, uh, who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary who's written the dissertation published on this who thinks that Paul was mainly influenced by the Aramaic translation and other similar Jewish traditions, hmm. and uh, was not that concerned about what the psalm meant. And so, um, I, uh, I I think uh, my my uh, my approach first is to say let's see what the psalm meant, and then see how Paul might be developing it. Yeah. And when you do that and you look at the context of the psalm again and again, God is prospering Israel. Later in the psalm, after verse 18, he even says people will bring gifts uh, to Israel. Yeah. And so there's this element of prospering uh, Israel. And so I think that what Paul is doing, he's taking the broader contextual idea of God prospering Israel and using verse 18 and paraphrasing it, turning the language the other way to pick up yeah. the main idea of the psalm. So the idea is um, really that uh, in the context, God has given gifts. Yeah, he received them, but really the, the major emphasis is Israel, uh, Israel prospering because of the gifts. Um, now, you could even translate Psalm 68, 8, the Greek uh, Hebrew word there, I believe, is uh, in Hebrew, lakak, and it can mean take. Could be translated, God has taken gifts among Israel, in which case there's really, that's pretty close to what Paul is saying. Yeah. Um, uh, he's he's taken gifts among it. He's he's given, uh, he's he's given gifts. Yeah. So um, uh, if if that's the case, uh, you know, if 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 uh, that Hebrew word can be translated as taken, then there's it's just a matter of yeah, sure. how do you translate Psalm sixty-eight eight? Is it he received? Because this word can mean receive or take. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. But, it's the same way with the Greek word in uh, the New Testament, lambano, which can mean receive or take. But uh, even if it's not that, then I think that um, uh, the context of the psalm is Israel prospering. Yeah. And I think if, if, if verse 18 is about, it should be translated and he received gifts, then I think Paul is changing that to summarize the context. Yeah. The major theme is 
is uh, is is prospering. We'll check that. I'm pretty sure it's a word that is uh, pronounced lakak. Yeah, it is. Wow. It's actually Psalm 68:19 that Paul is is quoting. Mm. So, um, so that could be the case. Some some uh, uh, commentators have have noted that point. So, yeah. Um, uh, so so that I I don't think that's really uh, a problem. I think that we should investigate the meaning of the psalm. Yeah. I think when Paul quotes the Old Testament, he has the context of the Old Testament in mind, and um, <clears throat> um, I, I, most of the text referred to uh, by um, this professor at Dallas Seminary uh, are. Uh, late. They're late texts. They're after the New Testament. They're not earlier texts. Hmm. And um, so I've actually had a student do a doctoral dissertation on this very passage. Hmm. And uh, he finds a few earlier Jewish texts in Qumran and what's called the War Scroll um, that uh, quote the part about um I, I believe it's either ascending on high or he led captive captives, and, uh, and and that's very early. And so it's likely that, you know, Jewish tradition was more concerned with the context of the psalm. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that's uh, a, a publication um, uh, has come out in, the, in uh, what's called a monograph series called The Library of um new testament studies um so wow no i i like that uh that way of looking at it and that's that's what i sort of came up with on my own before i was investigating other ways um of looking at it um because i immediately read that the whole chapter and i thought i mean that's is pretty clever um I, if, if you look at it that way the way Paul's applying it, um, uh, so I, I don't. I, I thought that was really cool, actually, um, but it was definitely confusing, um, and I wasn't yeah, completely yeah. confident in that. <laughs> right, right, and, and so, so how's Paul using it? I think he's saying that this victory that Israel won um, to finally um, secure Zion was a foreshadow of the greater victory that Christ mm-hmm. would. So I, I think it's a typological usage. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. No, uh, I think cool. I think he sees it as predictive, and I think the reason he does is because in chapter five he introduces uh, a quotation from Isaiah prophecies with the phrase "For this reason it says," and that's the same way he introduces mm, right. it in in verse eight. For this reason it says, mm. so that Paul is he's using that just a chapter later to introduce a prophetic fulfillment in Christ. And so I think the same phrase is introducing prophetic fulfillment here. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Um, um, yeah, yeah. I think if you investigate in the context, I, I I like the idea that Paul knew exactly what he was doing. It's not an accident. It's not some sort of um, something we got to beat around the bush about. But that that Paul uh, he he knew the Psalms and he knew the context and he knew, um, I, I, like you said. Um, well, he studied, uh, we know from the book of Acts that he studied under uh, this great rabbi called Gamaliel. Hmm. 
until he was probably in his late teens, early teens. I don't know. But part of studying under a rabbi at that time, what would you study? Well, yeah, there were some Jewish writings. That's true. Maybe you'd study some of those. But the central focus of your study is the Old Testament mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, to memorize the Old Testament. So he probably had whole sections of the Old Testament memorized. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so okay. we think, you know, we think we know more about the Old Testament than Paul or the New Testament writers. And and I will say that this issue is not just an interpretative issue. If you say that the Old Testament, the New Testament writers did not uh, uh, interpret the Old Testament in line with its meaning, but perhaps mm-hmm. contradictory to it, and you continue to preach that to people Sunday in and Sunday out, they're going to lose confidence in the oh, continuity yeah. Yeah. of the Bible. Yeah, I agree. Furthermore, it gets even more serious because you're not just saying the apostles interpreted in a contradictory way to the meaning of the Old Testament. You have to include Jesus in that. Yeah. And all, all of a sudden, now we're talking about a Christological problem. Is Jesus making mistakes Mm. in the way he interprets the Old Testament? Mm. Because some people will say that Jesus and the apostles preached the right doctrine from the wrong texts. And they will say that doctrine is inspired, but not the interpretative method. And I think that it is impossible to extricate the two. Yeah, that's really shaky ground. Oh, wow. A fellow by the name of Richard Longenecker has written on that and holds that position that I call right doctrine from the wrong text. I've written an article uh, called Did Jesus and the Apostles Preach the Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text in a journal called Thamelios um, in 1989. And then in around um, 1994, I put together a book called Right Doctrine from Wrong Text. Yeah. And in it, I put, I have scholars who argue, want, they have essays that argue one way, mm. and then essays that argue the other way, and readers can kind of look at those and see what they think. At the end, I have an essay by me and Richard Longenecker, so you can compare those. Oh, cool. And awesome. so it's a debate book, really. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I saw the title. I didn't know. I didn't know that. that that's what. Yeah, yeah, in one of in the early editions, uh, uh, on on the spine of the book, it has right doctrine from wrong text without the question mark. So it sounds like I'm I'm, I'm editing a book that uh, is about right doctrine from wrong text, but in fact, uh, on the cover, it's right doctrine from wrong text question mark. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. Um. All right. I have. Uh, I've got another. Um, and I think this comes up more than once, but this this is uh, something that, that really troubles people. Um, and another, another thing that, you know, someone that takes a, a liberal approach might just write off. But um, Matthew, when he talks about Judas in, in the 30 shekels, uh, he, he says this is quote, he quotes it from Jeremiah. Um, but as you investigate, it seems that Jeremiah didn't write about that. In fact, it's actually, uh, it was Zechariah. So I've heard different explanations about, some people say, oh, well, it's actually Jeremiah that wrote the second half of Zechariah. And people try to explain it that way. Um, 
so I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on what's going on with that. I think they're both involved, and without getting into the weeds of both passages, because it's very difficult, I think it's talking about events in the life of the prophets, those two prophets, and mm-hmm. the, the, I think it's a typological foreshadowing of what uh, then happened. The, the events that took place in the life of these prophets foreshadowed what would happen with Judas. Now, if you mm-hmm. want a good explanation further on that, you can look in the uh, commentary on the New Testament, Use of the Old, that Don Carson and I edited, and you can look at the first chapter on Matthew by Craig Blomberg. Mm. Craig Blomberg. And um, also um, um, R.T. France uh, published a book on Jesus in the Old Testament. And um, that's a very good book as well, where he he talks about um, that that use. So, um, but generally, that that would be the. I mean, it would take way too long to get into yeah. both those passages and, um, and and interpret them uh, properly in the way I would want to to do that here. So, generally, they're about events in the life of those prophets that foreshadow. They don't predict, they're not predictions, but yeah. they're events that foreshadow so that when they happen in Jesus' time, it's 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 still a fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. I've always focused on the 30 shekels, which is what you see in Zechariah and obviously in Matthew. Um, but I was listening to something that pointed out, to, as far as Jeremiah, that potter's field um, mm-hmm. We see we see that coming up there, and so anyway, um, I, I think that's just so fascinating to, to think that we can see it is, and that that is uh, that is one of the hardest ones in the New Testament, in my opinion. Yeah, it really that really is, and so that's why I'm directing readers to those yeah. two sources. I'll have to check that out. Uh, awesome. Um, so I'm trying to think what we have time for. Um, do you, have a, do you have a hard stop at, at 450 or do you just wanted to keep it at like a 50 minute? Yeah, four. Yeah, I need to finish around in 15 minutes. Okay. Um, I did have maybe going to ask a couple more questions. One was about uh, actually Paul does this a couple times. I think he does in Corinthians and uh, in Timothy where he talks about um, he's using the the law of, to do not muzzle your ox uh, when trading right. the grain. Um, yeah. And he applies it to uh, ministers and, you know, and how they should be supported. Um, so it's easy to see how those things apply. Um, yeah. There's questions that come along with that. I mean, are we supposed to look at all of the law in that same way? Um, and if so, can we replicate that uh, ourselves? Um, so I just wanted to bring that up and see your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, that's a big debated one. Some think that Paul is looking at that quotation in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. Um, Do not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. He, that Paul is looking at that and thinking that the main primary meaning is about apostles. Hmm. Has nothing to do with animals. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So that Paul is allegorizing. He's reading in a wild meaning to it. 
That, that's often the way this text is taken, mm-hmm. uh, especially by more non-evangelical commentators. Like, for example, C.K. Barrett was an English commentator, uh, others as well. And um, so... <clears throat> Um, one thing they focus on is that phrase in chapter 9, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 9, verse 9, where he quotes it, you will not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Then he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now, the word for not there expects um, a negative answer. So we should paraphrase this way, okay? I mean, this is the way it's taken now. God is not concerned uh, about oxen, is he? No. Or is he not speaking completely for our sake? Well, that sounds like, again, that this verse has nothing to do with oxen. And this is why some commentators take it that Paul is seeing that Moses somehow was speaking about apostles way back then. Okay. So um, the problem with that uh, translation of um, uh, or is he speaking completely for our sake? You could translate that as certainly or surely. It, it, it's not a, a kind of quantitative thing, but surely he's speaking for our sake, or certainly he is speaking for our sake. If you look up a lexicon, it includes that those two meanings for that word in Greek, which is pantos. And uh, that can mean completely or altogether, but it can also just mean sort of emphatically, surely, or certainly. And I think that's the way Paul is taking it. I don't think he's saying that that text was only about uh, the apostles, but I think he's taking a comparison from the lesser to the greater. If oxen can share the reward, have a reward from their work. We as apostles are worthy of the wage. We need financial support too. So that that phrase there where he said, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? No. Well, I think it needs to be softened with the next phrase, or is he speaking surely for our sake? So I think it's a soft no and not a hard no in the sense that um, uh, um, th- th- that that passage uh, is can be applied to other situations, yeah. not just to oxen. So that's one way to take this passage. It's going from the lesser to the greater. And the no here, God's not speaking uh, about oxen as he no. It's a soft no, because you go on to the next verse. Uh, Is he not surely speaking for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to hope in uh, sharing of crops. So you can see there that he quotes another proverb, really. The plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope. Okay, The, the, the farmer. So he's saying he's going from lesser to greater there, right? Yeah, yeah. From the farmer. Uh, and so it's likely he's doing the same in the preceding. And um, in fact, some take that as a proverb, plowman ought to plow and hope. 
and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Some think that's a proverb. Uh, it, it may be. I can't remember the evidence for that, but it may be. And um, uh, that's very interesting because some Old Testament commentators think that that phrase, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, is an Old Testament proverb. Because in Deuteronomy 25, it's all about just relations between humans. There's not one other verse about animals in Deuteronomy 25, except Deuteronomy 25.4. So something already there, it's a proverb for just relations. Wow. Uh, that, that, that people ought to treat each other justly and, uh, and rewarding a workman for his hire. So it may be that since Paul follows with some Proverbs, he's quoting a proverb already. Wow, that's wild. Wow, that is so wild. Okay, um, can I ask one more question? And then we'll close sure. Up? All right, this will be my last one, and I ask this because um, depending on how you, you look at this, it can kind of take you theologically uh, on, on two different routes. So when Christ is on the cross and he quotes – Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some will, some will say he's just simply quoting the psalm. Some would say Christ himself is in fact being forsaken and he's being separated from the Trinity. And so there's a debate there. Um, and uh, and I, I imagine it goes on, on how you're seeing Christ using um, that quote there. So uh, I'm curious to, to hear... Um, what you think uh, Christ is doing, uh, saying that on the cross. Let's repeat what you said again, the, the, what you perceive the debate to be. Um, whether or not he is just simply quoting yeah. Psalm 22 and, and just applying that to himself, um, just saying uh -huh. that he, he's feeling this way, right. or whether or not, as kind of what we're spoken, that this is now um, obviously agony that, that David is feeling, but it's pointing forward, uh, yeah. you know, that event is a pointing forward to Christ. And yeah, Christ I think it is. Fulfillment here. I think it's both. Yeah. So, but I don't think it's only the first. Right, right, right. I think it's mainly that David's sufferings are pointing forward to Christ's sufferings. And uh, one reason I think that is because other parts of Psalm 22 are uh, yeah. quoted in terms of fulfillment. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'll read hmm. you. Yeah, I'll read you an example here. Um, yeah, he quotes Psalm uh, uh, 22 uh, in uh, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, that that's Psalm uh, uh, 22, 8. So that's one. And then in verse, that's in verse 43, Matthew 27, then he follows with, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, but still, there's no, as far as we can tell, any formal uh, fulfillment phrases. But then in verse uh, 39, he quotes Psalm 22 again, uh, that uh, people hurling abuse were wagging their heads. So Psalm, he's, this is saturated, Matthew's yeah, saturated. Wow with um, Psalm uh, 22, and, um, and and then a little bit later, um, I think we have a fulfillment uh, formula attached to Psalm, um, 
the Psalm 22. I'm just looking here. Psalm 22 that mentions uh, they pierced my, my hands and my feet as well. Um, I know the Psalm has that. Um, let me just check the parallel in Luke a moment, because this is really important. It mentions, too, I, I can count all my bones is on there as well. Yeah. Um, they, they divide my clothes amongst them as well. They threw lots for my clothing. That's, I didn't really think about um, how much of that psalm is. It's not just that one line. Yeah. It's in John's Passion narrative. Mm -hmm. It's in John 19, 28. And it says, uh, when, he, when, when Jesus said, verse 27 to John, the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. Mm. And that is mm. Psalm, um, now that's Psalm uh, 69, 21, which is, again, uh, part of the sufferings of David. Mm. Um, so you have an example from Psalm 69 that's, that's a parallel with Psalm 62, where you have... Um, where you have fulfillment. And um, let's see. And then in verse 36, he says, for these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And that's about the Passover lamb. And we discussed that. Um, we discussed that earlier. Um, so, um, so it was Psalm 69 that I was thinking of that is parallel with um, uh, Psalm 22, where fulfillment language is actually explicitly mm -hmm. um, attached uh, to to that to that language. And in in Mark uh, 15:24. You have a reference again to Psalm 22. Uh, they divided up his garments, casting lots among them to decide what each should take. Um, and then again in, in verse 29 there, it talks about them wagging their heads. That's again from Psalm 22. So they're, they're, uh, these narratives are completely um, absorbed with Psalm 22, and I think the reason is because David's sufferings uh, foreshadow the sufferings uh, of Christ. And, and some of this language is attached to fulfillment formula, like Psalm 69, uh, discussing the sufferings of um, David. And also, of course, we, we talked about Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb. So you get these events that are not direct predictions that are seen as foreshadowings. Yeah, that's just so incredible. <laughs> and, and the and, and the psalm ends, by the way. The psalm ends that all the earth will remember this. All of a sudden, it goes into this universal eschatological thing. Well, David wasn't remembered in that way. Mm. So if you look at the end of the psalm, it says, so crazy. It says uh, all, all, all the earth will, um, all the earth will remember. And I, I believe it. 
Hebrews even, um, I believe Hebrews quotes that. It says, verse 27, Psalm 22, uh, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord as a result of this event. All the families of the nations will worship mm-hmm. before you. I mean, all of a sudden, it goes from David's sufferings to this eschatological thing, which yeah. I think indicates that David's sufferings are pointing toward an eschatological climax. So it's it's really, um, yeah, it's really it's really very exciting. No, that's um, incredible. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's chilling to think how all of, all of world history is, is leading um, and pointing forward uh, to Christ. It's a uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's just so amazing. Um, yeah. So just yes or no, you, you would say that, that Jesus is separated from the Trinity on the cross? I know that um, there are some who believe that uh, when Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at the cross, that the Son is separated from the Father and the Trinity. And um, I, I, I think uh that's part of what you're asking correct yeah yeah absolutely yeah and so um yeah i i think that it is not correct to say that the father is separated from the son um in 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 the trinity uh so what does it mean then when christ says my god my god why have you forsaken me well i i think the idea is that uh, we need to say what happened to Christ on the cross was forsakenness. Um, no one can escape from the presence of God, um, uh, whether one is an unbeliever or or not. Um, and so what happens at the cross, uh, whereas Jesus previously had experienced the favorable presence of God toward him, during his earthly ministry, now he uh, faces the wrath of God. He is no longer in a favorable relationship with God. He faces the wrath of God. And so he's in a condition of forsakenness, a condition of experiencing wrath. And and so um, uh, in that sense, if you want to say Jesus was separated from God, you would want to define that as Christ experiencing the wrath of God, uh, no longer experiencing a favorable relationship with God. He is in exile. And so um, I think that's uh, the best way to uh, to say that. He was in a forsaken relationship now. He was um, uh, experiencing... Um, exile, which he had never experienced before. But the uh, in the midst of all that, the Father is not separated from the Son. I gotcha. I gotcha. So, yeah, the forsaken, there's more of a status than, um, than, than a separation. So I'm going to follow that up with another question, because this is the people that, that would make that argument would say, theologically, it's necessary for... Uh, the father to be separated from the son, because in order to make atonement, um, in order in order to to make a way for us um, to not be separated from the father, 
he has to himself be separated uh, so that we don't have to. That, I believe, is the the argument there. So what's your response to that? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think that um, the key there is that Christ suffers the wrath of God on our behalf. He suffers eternal judgment on our behalf. Um, that does not entail that um, the Son is separated from the Father in the Trinity. Um, if, if, if that were the case, the Trinity would be destroyed. Um, you can't have that. In fact, uh, Christ still has to be a divine person to take uh, the wrath of God. Why? He's not just taking the wrath of God for one person. He's taking the eternal wrath of God. So he has to be a, a divine person who can take upon himself the eternal wrath of God for many. Not only does he have to be God to take it for many, but to take it for eternity in a moment of time. And, and of course, at that point, you're, you're, it's, a, it's a mystery of how Christ could experience the wrath, of, eternal wrath of God in a moment of time for uh, a multitude of people, but he has to be divine. He can't. He cannot be separated uh, um, from uh, the Father in the Trinity. So, I think yes, he's forsaken for us. He takes the wrath of God for us. Um, if you want to speak of that as separation, that's fine. But you want to define that very carefully, not as separation of the Father from the Son, but as the Son now experiencing the wrath of God, of God's forsakenness. Hmm. So I do like that because I, I think you run into some issues, uh, as you're pointing out when you, when you talk about separation between the Father and Son and how we understand the Trinity. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll follow that with, with one more question. Uh, for those that choose not to accept um, uh, Christ's atonement, for those that would be damned, um, would you see that as eternal separation for them, or are they going to be experiencing that wrath for all of eternity? Um, They're going to be, if you, if you don't believe that Jesus took the judgment, the final judgment of God upon himself, then you have to take that judgment. Hmm. I guess. Yes. You. Yeah. So either and, except, yeah. Now, now, a second Thessalonians does, uh, <clears throat> refer to that judgment uh, in, in very interesting language. Let me, let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where he says that those, God will deal out re retribution, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So what does that mean? That really the, the eternal punishment will be that the, in fact, it defines the penalty of eternal destruction as being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Um, I think it means that uh, uh, they're not going to experience the favorable, intimate presence of God um, uh, that believers 
will experience. Um, in fact, it says they, they will not experience his glory. And then it says believers in verse 10 will be glory. God will be glorified in his saints. And, um, and it goes on to say that, um, uh, that Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him. That's what happens at the final coming of, uh, Christ for the saints, they will experience the glory of God. Unbelievers will not. By the way, they're not separated from uh, the presence of God. God is omnipresent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God is still present, but now He's pouring wrath out upon them. Yeah, that's really important. So when it says that that they are uh, eternal destruction is away from the presence of the Lord, it's away from His glorious presence. From his redeeming and favorable presence, he is still present. He's omnipresent, and he's pouring out wrath upon them, yeah, and and, and destruction. So it's that intimate saving presence that they do not have. If you now, if you want to define that as separation, you, you want to be very careful to uh, uh, say that those believers, those unbelievers are still not cut off from the presence of God because he's omnipresent. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I'm following you, but I, and I hadn't planned on asking <laughs> this, but I have, I do have one more follow-up question because um, there's a, a belief, you know, I guess there's two, two views on hell. One is that there's eternal torment. The other is annihilation. Um, yes. Someone that would, that would believe in annihilation would say, well, well, Christ, his, his uh, forsakenness, was was not e eternal right it was temporary um therefore how do you know if so 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 their justification is, is real simple there, there's annihilation um wait a minute for, now. For someone that has the okay. eternal torment um how is it that the that the punishment uh and and the wrath that's being poured out is never ending um how is christ taking that punishment when his uh, when his torment ended, right? That's, I think, the, the yes. argument for the to be To be consistent, this is very important now. The annihilationist position holds that unbelievers will be annihilated. They will go out of existence and not suffer ongoing eternal conscious punishment, okay? Mm -hmm. So that means <clears throat> that um, at the cross that... Um, so that the, the Christ would have to be annihilated. Uh, so if he was um, annihilated, uh, then uh, you don't have to be annihilated. There has to be a parallel. Christ suffers the judgment for for uh, people who accept him. He suffers that judgment, um, so they don't have to suffer it. Those who don't accept. Uh, that Christ suffered their judgment, they must suffer that judgment. It has to be the same judgment. Mm -hmm. So that if they're annihilated, if one holds that, then Christ had to be annihilated. And now we have another problem with the Trinity. It's a little different problem. Uh, a second person of the Trinity goes out of existence. That's, that's, that's one of the problems with annihilationism, not to speak of uh, many other problems. I have written an essay on this, from the book of Revelation, and it's in a book called Hell Under Fire. Hmm. Hell Under Fire. 
And in that book are a number of essays on, 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 on different books of the New Testament affirming, in fact, that there is this notion uh, of an ongoing eternal punishment um, and, and not an annihilation. So if you're an annihilationist and you don't believe that Christ, uh, and you're saying that unbelievers suffer uh, uh, annihilation, then you have to really uh, extend that back to Christ. Therefore, Christ suffered annihilation for those who believe, so they don't have to suffer that annihilation. Hmm. And that means the second person of the Trinity was annihilated. You can't hold the second person of the Trinity was annihilated. So I would contend, in fact, that because Christ is God, and he never went out of existence as God, that um, he was able, therefore, to take within himself an eternal punishment hmm. because he's God. And not only that, he's able to take upon himself the punishment for many. There are two mysteries there, but he's able to do it because he's God. Now, how he's able to do it, I don't know, but because he's God, he's an eternal God, he's able to take an eternal punishment upon himself. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I've never heard that counter argument. Um, yeah, just just uh, just to throw that. Well, the, back the, the second part of the counter argument is, in fact, I don't think that their interpretation of many passages speaking of eternal judgment is correct, such as in Revelation 14, where it talks about their judgment, the smoke of their judgment going up forever and ever. Now they have responses to that, but I don't think that they are um, that they are convincing. So I would really direct you to uh, the book Hell Under Fire. And um, uh, to the essays there, and, and also my essay uh, in um, in that book on the Book of Revelation. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so your essay is, is in that book, the one you referenced. Yeah, the Hell, yeah. Hell yeah. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. Uh, cool. So I think that brings clarity. And and well, you've asked, you've really addressed a very difficult topic, and we have to be very careful about uh, how we use our, our words in relationship to what happened to Jesus on the cross. And I, I would prefer not to use, I would prefer to say he experienced the wrath of God, the forsakenness of God. And um, if you want to define that as separation, okay. But um, uh, I think you you have to be very careful to define separation as he experienced the forsakenness of God, the wrath of God yeah. for, uh, for us. It's the epitome of exile. Jesus suffered a greater exile on the cross than Israel ever suffered. Their exile in Babylon was a faint physical foreshadowing of the exile of true Israel, Jesus on the cross, because he's true Israel. Mm. He's going through wow. the greater exile that they really deserved. And he's taking the ultimate exile upon himself, and uh, uh, and and then he's overcoming it by resurrection, and that's the restoration of Israel. When Jesus rises from the dead, that's the restoration mm. from Israel. That's when all the restoration prophecies of Israel begin to be fulfilled. Not an ethnic Israel in a millennium, or or sometime in the future. Wow! And this is why, and this is why a lot of the restoration prophecies 
are seen as beginning fulfillment in Jesus and in Paul, the one we read in Romans 9 from uh, Hosea chapter 2 is a restoration prophecy, yeah, beginning fulfillment in the Gentiles. Yeah, wow. So Gentiles are true Israel, beginning to fulfill the restoration prophecies. Why? Because they've come into union with Jesus, Jesus. the true yeah. Israel. Yeah, yeah, all right. Um, well, listen, um, this was a, a fascinating uh, subject, and you've given, you've given me a springboard uh, to jump off of uh, and dig in uh, even deeper. So uh, I want to thank you for that. Um, I do want to give you opportunity. I know you, you've talked about um, the, the course you have coming up on this very subject. So I will give links for those that are interested in that. Yeah, I also um, have a forthcoming book coming out with Baker Publishers uh, in April, in the middle of April. It's called Union with the Resurrected Christ. And um, <clears throat> and so I, I talk about 18 or 19 ways uh, uh, that we come into union with Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, so what he took on at his ascension uh, as a human Messiah, he was he, he became the escalated king, uh, a greater human king than he was uh, on earth. So um, uh, we become kings. We're identified with kings in him. He's the ultimate. He, he became an escalated priest. We become priests, so kings and priests. He was declared to be the son of God uh, uh, at his ascension. And so uh, we become sons of God. So what he became at his the second phase of his resurrection at the ascension, we become when we come into union with Christ. So we that's why we're in the image of God. Why? Because he was in the escalated Adamic image and in mm. full glory at his ascension. Mm. And so the, the, the I, I do deal with the, uh, some old and the new in that book as well. Oh, cool. So. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, I'll be looking forward to, to, to picking that up. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, if you would, uh, you close this out in prayer. Sure. Lord, we thank you for this time of discussing your word. We pray that you'll uh, lead us into a greater understanding of your word, Lord, and, and, and how your Bible connects uh, different parts of your word. Help us to grow in that understanding, too. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.